0: Land. I have there for you Joshua one one through three. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, <coughs> the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, uh, will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised. uh, Moses. So, this is a very bold, this is a very faithful generation. This is a courageous generation. The old, unbelieving generation, the murmuring generation, they died in the wilderness. Um, When they crossed the Red Sea, the enemy was behind them, right? They came out of Egypt. The enemy was following them out of Egypt. Now, as they stand on this side of the Jordan, where is the enemy? He's in front of them. Okay, so they have become the offensive team, right? They, they came out, they were the defensive team, they're going in, they are the offensive team. All right, so I've got a little bit there about Joshua. Um, I, I will leave that to you. Let me say, you can look there and learn a little bit about him. Let me say there the twofold responsibility given to Joshua and the nation of Israel, and this sort of comprises what's going on in the book of Joshua. Number one, to destroy the population of the land that has been promised to them, and then to divide up and inhabit the land, okay? So that's Joshua's responsibility, destroy the population of the land, and then divide it up and inhabit it, all right? So hence the conquest and division that is the name of this section. Okay, regarding the destruction of the Israelites. So I've got several overview points that I want to hit here, especially in the book of Joshua, that I think are very, very important. Um, I, you know, I, I tell the high schoolers, you're going to get to college one day, and if you go to a certain college, you're going to have some cool professor, and he's going to try to trip you up. He's going to try to make you doubt what the Bible? He's going to make you try to doubt your faith, and, and this is one of the things that he's going to throw at you. That historically, I I've had this thrown at me in an academic setting. So so how can a good God exterminate, destroy the entire population of a land, and then give it to somebody else? Like how you know that that's a different God they would say than the God of of the New Testament because that is so offensive that God would command genocide, okay? All right, so I, I want to try to like equip us with a response to that because I don't think that's true, but that's a hard question to answer, okay? So let me offer you um, some, some points here and then maybe we can have a, just a little bit of discussion because I don't want to breeze over this. This isn't easy. This is not easy stuff here, all right? So the first point I, I would say here is, number one, the Canaanites had been given a remarkable measure of light from God that as Abraham and his family have lived in their midst, okay? So, all the way back to Abraham entering into Canaan, Abraham was there, he did all that going around and like beating up on the kings and when when the kings came and took over the king of Sodom, Abraham took off after him with his militia and he brought them back, so... Abraham has been in the land, as has Isaac and Jacob, for generations, and, and they've been a testimony to the God Yahweh, okay? We also know that Melchizedek was there. Remember Melchizedek? He's, he's there in the land, all right? So, there is light, all right? So, these are people who, for hundreds of years, have chosen not to follow Yahweh, and they had that opportunity. If you remember in Genesis 15, God says, I'm going to bring you back to the land in 400 years. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to be there for 400 years. And he specifically says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. Okay, so 400 years, which leads to the next point there. Yahweh had patiently endured the wickedness of Canaan for hundreds of years. All right, so so you have both light in the part of the patriarchs and Melchizedek, and almost certainly others, and then you have patience on the part of God for hundreds of years. We will talk about Rahab uh, in just a few minutes. I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself, but it's, it strikes me always that Rahab says to the spies who, are, who have come into the city, she says, we, we've heard what you did to Egypt, and we've heard what you did to Og, and we've heard what you did to, um, there's another guy, Sid, Sid, the king of Sidon, we've heard what you did to these people, and we're shaken in our boots, and so Rahab says, I, I'm coming to you because I want help, you know, I don't, I don't want to be destroyed, and I, as far as we know, she's the only person in the whole city of Jericho who said that, but any of the rest of them could have, and by the way, she was received into the people of God, right, Okay, so I think that's a great example there of both the light that they had and the patience that God was showing them. The other thing that I want to point out here is that the Canaanites were absolutely and unspeakably corrupt. They were very, very wicked people. They were specifically sexually immoral people. I have there Leviticus eighteen twenty-five. Do not make yourselves unclean for any of these things, for by all the, these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So, um, how to say this in a family-friendly way? They, they found, uh, so in the book of 1 Samuel, um, when the people don't know, so the, the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember this story. It's in, in uh, 1 Samuel 4 through 7. They've taken the Ark of the Covenant, and it is caught, remember Dagon, the fish god, has fallen over, he's lost his head, um, so they can't keep the Ark there, so they send it somewhere else, and the people there get boils and plagues, and they send it somewhere else, and the people there get boils and plagues, and so they send it on a cart with a couple of um, cows, and they just send them on their way, and, but they put on the cart these um, golden boils. It's, it's in, the, in the text, and that, that was considered in, in, in their pagan thinking that they would make these golden replicas of what they were experiencing, and they would sort of sacrifice that to the god that they were trying to appease. So it actually says in the text, they sent these golden um, uh, boils and mice because they think that maybe the plague has come through mice, okay? Well, in the, uh, in the, the Canaan Palestine, archeologists have found um, these golden replicas um, all over the place of, of, shall we say, diseased organs, okay? And, and so which leads them to believe that this was an incredibly diseased people who were trying to rid themselves of these diseases, all right? So, so that's what they're trying to do, okay? So we have this like actual archaeological evidence that these people were incredibly diseased and they needed to be kind of removed from the face of the earth, all right? Uh, I have there, the Canaanite tribes had not submitted to God's determination to give Israel to his covenant people, except for the Gibeonites, we'll talk about them in a minute. Instead, they had prepared themselves for stout resistance against Israel, so they have all, one of the reasons that Joshua is so easily able to take the land is that all of the people have gone into these walled cities And they've located themselves in these central places that uh, Josh can Joshua Josh. I'd call him Josh. You know me and Josh. We go way back. Joshua uh, is able to take those cities very easily. So rather than um, submitting themselves to Yahweh, they've they've grouped themselves against Yahweh. And then finally, the command to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan must not be understood as divine sanction upon imperialist advances by an invading foreign power. Yahweh was removing a cancerous growth. From the human race and the nation of israel was simply the scalpel in the hand of the god of the universe all right and then i have a quote for, from gleason archer there that you can read all right I, I don't i don't mean to assume that that just answers all your questions um but any any thoughts or, or comments about that what what do you guys think about those those reasons for why that doesn't make god a, a heinous wicked God for, for committing genocide against these poor people. Yes. Well, they had the diseases. They, they, were, they had the diseases, and they were trying to get rid of the diseases. So it would be like if you had a, a big boil growing on your arm, you would make a golden replica of that boil to, and sacri- give that to the God so that the God might be appeased and, and remove your boil. It's odd. It's not normal. It's gross. <laughs> All right. All right. So we got three great events in the life of Joshua. Event number 1 is the crossing of the Jordan. By the way, the Jordan is a trickle today of what it used to be. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Israel is using the water from the Sea of Galilee to drink. So there's just there's not as much water as there used to be, but if you go to the if you go to the Jordan River today, you might be a tiny bit disappointed in what you find there. Um, it used to be bigger. It used to, to overflow its banks to a much greater extent. Um, so when, when Israel comes into the Promised Land, God parts the Jordan River in the same way that he parted the Red Sea uh, in front of Moses. So God is demonstrating that Joshua is God's choice to replace Moses. So, Israel camps on the plain of the Jordan Rift at a place called Gilgal. Um, the day Israel crosses the Jordan River is 40 years to the day since they observed the first Passover, all right? So, that's 40 years later. It's significant that the Ark of the Covenant goes in before them at a reverent distance of 2,000 cubits, and um, With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, none of them remembered the parting of the Red Sea. So when when they parted the Red Sea, it was Moses' rod that parted the sea. This time it's the ark, the very symbol of God's presence that leads them through on dry ground. And then why this miracle? Because at this season of the year, so we know that it was the Passover season, springtime, similar time to what we're in right now. Um, it would have been absolutely impossible for the nation, men, women, and children to cross the Jordan because in the spring, the Jordan overflowed its banks, okay? Um, You can see the city of Jericho, well, I should say this, the city of Jericho can see the Jordan River from where they are, and just imagine if you've got yourself locked up in your walled city and there's three million people, on one side of the Jericho, and of the Jordan, and suddenly the Jordan parts and they walk across and then it goes back and now those three million people are on the other side of the Jordan and they're right at your front door. I mean, this, you know, go back to Rahab, right? This, this is terrifying, all right? And, and they had to have a pretty good idea of, of what was gonna happen. Okay, they were indeed sort of shaking their fist at God, saying, we're not giving it up. We're not giving it up, which they, they clearly could have done. Three significant events at Gilgal. Um, in the years, in the wilderness, the rite of circumcision had been neglected, so Joshua commands that all Israel be circumcised. They celebrate the Passover. Uh, because of their uncircumcised state, they had not celebrated the Passover since Mount Sinai. So again, in full view of the city of Jericho, they have a party, all right? So not only are they now across the, Jericho, the Jordan, uh, but they're, they're having a big Passover celebration. And then manna. It is here that the manna from God ceases. Um, they'll, they'll no longer need that supernatural provision because they will enjoy the natural provision of the land that God has given them. Remember, we talked about this last time. They moved into the land. They only destroy... Jericho, Ai, and Hazor, okay, the rest of the land, they just move in. They, the houses, the lands, the vineyards, they just become there. So Israel coming in at the time of the Passover, at the time of the, the first harvest, um, they're able to start eating from the food of the promised land as soon as they come into the, the promised land. All right, and then there' a word about Rahab. I've already kind of kind of shared this. Um, she she clearly in both Hebrews and James she is a harlot. She is also a person who responded by faith, and I just have there in bold there in that whole city where everyone is apparently scared about the prospect of fighting the God of the Israelites. There's one woman who begs for mercy, and I, I think she's just a remarkable lady. Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will find it. Well, I'm sorry, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it. I think Rahab is a wonderful illustration of a person who lost her life. So she lost her career, she lost her religion, she lost her city, she lost her nationality, but she gained the life that God had for her by becoming a people a part of the people of God. Okay, so she lost her life in order to gain it. All those people in Jericho who said, no, I'm going to keep my life, my religion, my city, my nationality, they all tried to save their life, and what happened to them? They lost their life, right? So Rahab is a great example of you may think you're giving something up in order to become a follower of, of Yahweh, of Jesus Christ, but you're not. You're not giving up anything worth keeping. Right? And if you're trying to save it, you're not trying to save anything worth keeping. All right. So I think that that Rahab is a great illustration of that. All right, event number two then is the conquest of Canaan. Uh, The land of Canaan was inhabited by several tribes of people. God commanded that they be destroyed. It was not Joshua's responsibility. I want to be clear on this. This was really helpful for me when I learned this. It was not Joshua's responsibility to destroy all the peoples of the land. That is not what he is trying to do, nor is that what he is supposed to be doing. Joshua has a plan to cripple certain cities, certain major cities, certain major kings, and then once that work is done, he will turn it over to the tribes, and they will do the rest of the work themselves okay? So it's not like Joshua comes in, does all the work, and then everybody goes and lives peacefully. Josh, And that's part of the problem. Well, see, that's part of the problem in Judges is they don't do the work that they're supposed to go in there and do. But Joshua comes in over a period of seven years, and he has this conquest of the land. And I've got that picture there. Wait, I have, uh, I put it up here so that I can make reference to it. I hope this will work. This is is what happens when I design a slide at 445. All right, so there it is. So you've got it right there uh, in your notes as well. So you've got Jericho right here. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Joshua comes in over Jericho, and he cuts off the middle. So Jericho is here. I would have been here. okay. And then he comes down to the south, and he takes out uh, Gibeon, Ajalon, and Makadah, right, the five kings, but, which, by the way, the five kings who come and try to attack the Gibeonites, that was really helpful for Joshua because that could, that way he could knock out five kings in, like, one battle, right? So they're they're helping him along the way, and then he comes up here to the north, and he destroys a city called Hadzor. You may have never heard of Hadzor. The significant thing about Hadzor is simply that's the other city that he burned to the ground. He only burned two cities to the ground. Those cool professors who want to try to argue with you about whether or not this really happened, one of the things they'll say is, there's just so little evidence in, in Canaan of destruction from that period of time. Well, well why, why would that? That's actually perfectly reasonable. That, that Our understanding of the scripture fits with that statement because they didn't burn all of Canaan. They burned three cities. Right, and one of them, I, they weren't, they weren't really supposed to burn that one, but they had a whole, the whole mess with Achan, and they had to go and 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 take on and and burn that one down. Okay, so so that's how Joshua comes in, middle, he takes these the cities in the south, and then he comes back up there and he um, burns Hazor, and then at that point, Joshua's work is done. All right, so that's that's his his strategy. Uh, let me see if there's anything else I want to say about that. Any any questions there? Yes. Where does it say that? Uh, some horses slowed down. I don't know. Uh, those are just, it's the cities. I just I yanked this off of something that I found. So any other questions? Try to ask a question. I know too. All right, I want to talk a minute about Jericho. Uh, Jericho is very very important. So. Joel Kramer, that's the guy in the video. I sent you another video by him back at Christmas time about, no, it was back in January about the star prophecy. He does that one. He has a great um, YouTube channel called the uh, Expedition Bible. Um, you, should, you should subscribe to that and, and, and watch that. He comes out with one every few weeks. But he, he's done a lot of work uh, in, in and around Jericho and he's got a lot of interesting things to say. So I just want to talk about this, because this is Jericho is a, is a much debated archeological site. We know where it is, um, but there's a lot of question, because a woman came in there back in the mid-1900s. Her name was Kathleen Kenyon, and she was a very smart person, and she did a lot of work, and she did all of her work, and she determined that, no, this, is, this could not possibly have been the site where the biblical description of, of what happened, happened. Okay, so she basically said, you know, the, the Joshua story that we find in the Bible, that could not have happened at Jericho. Well, Joel Kramer is an archaeologist, and he goes in there, and he looks at the site, and he considers what Kathleen Kenyon said, and he kind of proves that, no, what is there at Jericho is actually very consistent with with what we have in the text in Joshua chapter six. So he will do a much better job of what, of what I could do to explain that to you, but I did, I pulled a couple of pictures off. I, I think this picture is just helpful here um, because number one, it kind of gives you an idea. These cities are not very big, okay? So it's, don't think that when Joshua is coming to fight the battle of Jericho, you know, he's not coming to fight Savannah, you know, he's not coming to fight Garden City, you know, he's, he's coming to fight like a little walled city on a hill, all right, they're not massive, and as a matter of fact, most of the people or a lot of the people probably would have had even homes outside of the city, uh, but they've come into the city because they're under attack, so they've come into the, the walled city uh, because they are going to be attacked. The other thing I want you to see is, is how this wall is, is set up, this double wall here, um, with this revetment wall down here at the bottom. So you've got the stone wall here and this revetment wall, and that's just kind of important um, for seeing what, what it is that, that is going to show that what the Bible says is, is actually true. This is a picture of the, of the, the Tel Jericho um, that you visit today. So that's what it looks like Today, it is the hottest place I've ever been in my entire life. The last time it was there, it was 125 degrees. So it is it is down in the in the Jordan Rift at at one of the deepest places on the face of the Earth. I was there in July, you know, all of these excited people, and we pretty much just got off the the bus, and I was like, "There's Jericho," and then we got back on the bus because it was just it was so so unbelievably hot. So it's a miserable place in the summer. That's you know, it it looks miserable. yeah, so that's that's the, the tell today. Okay, so this this is a, this is Kathleen Kenyon's archaeological drawing, and all I want to say is this: those ramparts. Well, that'll work. So these ramparts up here, you see, um, they're they're earth brick, okay, um, and they are on top of this stone brick. The the the, the revetment wall here, and it, let me read it to you from, the, from Joshua 6, because this is actually helpful. The story of the walls actually falling down is actually very, very brief. You, you think that the whole chapter has a lot about it, but it, it actually has like two verses. Um, let me see. It's Joshua 6. I'll start in verse 20. So the people shouted... And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. The wall fell down flat, okay? Um, Literally, the wall fell in on itself. It fell out. It fell out, okay? So the wall falls out, which actually produces... So if the wall is, is here, and it falls out, it produces a ramp that the Israelites can, can literally run up into the city, okay? This is what she found at the site. This is her drawing. This is Kathleen Kenyon's drawing. And that's the wall right there. Nobody disputes that that's the wall. Those are the mud bricks. Um, that, and they're, they're right there, and they fell out so that the, the people could run right up into the city, all right? Any questions about that? Like, I, listen, watch the video. He'll do a way better job of explaining that than I did, okay? It is very interesting to see that the Bible... We're not going to convince anybody to become a Christian, right? Because we're like, look, Jericho, it really happened, you know? But it's good for us, it's good for our hearts to know that the things that we read in the Bible is, is based in faith. Um, or that we have things we have faith in is, is based on historical fact. The other thing I want to show you is they found, I don't know how well you can see that, but these are um, jars in storage. They're jars that were full of grain, okay, and that, were, that they found in the city of Jericho. Archaeologists found these jars. And two things about it. Number one, it shows that this city was destroyed uh, at the time of the, the spring harvest, Right? So there you go. Uh, You would expect that there would be jars full of grain that they've gathered into um, into the storehouses. The grain and the jars were charred from being burned. All right, the other interesting thing about that is they're full and they're in the city. And that matters because number one, there wasn't a siege, right? If there had been a siege of the city for months and months and months, they would have eaten that. And number two, What was Joshua told to do? He was told to burn everything. Okay, so most armies, when they came into the city, if they had attacked the city, they would have taken the food and they would have eaten it for themselves. All right, but the fact that they find these jars full of of grain there in Jericho is um, just more evidence that what we find there is consistent with what you would expect to find there based on what the Bible says. All right, so. Any other questions? That's all I got there. Yes. Yes. You mean like today? Yes, there, there is a city there um, today. And there's a camel who always lives right at the gate of the city and he stinks. Um, but Lucy rode that camel once upon a time. And she's not in here, but it's a, it was a very special time. <sighs> any questions, any other questions? Somebody wanna wake up Harry? Okay, yes no no right no they're they're not they're not going they're going to spread out all over the land yeah so i mean jericho would well jericho's not a city that they would have inhabited but they once the land is divided then the three million people spread out all over the land and live in the different cities that, that are all over the land yes yes whoever rebuilt joshua it was rebuilt, it, it, it's actually, it's in Kings somewhere, you can read about the time when it was rebuilt, and like a man rebuilt it, and he, he rebuilt it at the expense of his firstborn and his secondborn son. Both, both of them died as a result of him rebuilding that city. And then Jericho's in the New Testament, too, like the um, Zacchaeus lives in Jericho, and uh, two blind men are healed in Jericho, so Jericho, it does resurface in, in the Bible. Somebody rebuilt it, to their, to their peril. Anything else? All right. Let's then talk about the third event in Joshua. Uh, and that is the division of the land. And I know we're moving quickly here, but after the land had been conquered, Joshua oversaw the division of the land among the 12 tribes. Three of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, Remember, they decided they wanted to live on the other side of the Jordan. They liked the land over there. And so they came to Moses and they said, can we have this land? And Moses says, yeah, that's fine, but you have to come and fight and then you can go back home after you're done. So they say, okay. So three of the, three of the tribes gets, gets the land on that side. The first tribe given was Judah. That tribe's portion is the largest plot. It's in the southern part of the territory. Um, <coughs> Simeon is given apart within Judah, and then they have several cities in the region of Judah. Levi, of course, is not given any specific portion of the land. Those are the, that's the priests, okay, so they have Levitical cities that are given to them throughout the land. Uh, Dan, Dan was given a very fruitful, beautiful region down near the Mediterranean, so Dan got like seaside property that was going to be given to him but that area was populated by the Philistines and the Danites decided well that's too much work for us to go and root them out of there so rather than trusting God they go up to the north to an area called Laish and they claim the territory for themselves so Dan ends up being the tribe that is in the far north part of uh, Israel so when you read in the Bible from Dan to Beersheba that is the, the biblical way of saying from the far north to the far south of Israel. Wet. The most wet to the most dry. Yeah, Dan, Dan is like a tr- tropical rainforest almost up there. It's a beautiful part. There's, um, Israel has all these different regions that are, that are so cool. Benjamin is given a small but important land uh, just north of Judah. At one point in the book of Judges, Benjamin is reduced to only 600 men, and eventually Benjamin is sort of absorbed into Judah. There's no tribe of uh, Joseph, but there are two Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, And the way they divide up the land, you know how, like, if you've got a cookie, and you've got, you know, a couple of kids, and you say, well, one of you can divide the cookie, and the other one gets to choose which piece he wants first, right? So that's that's kind of how they, they kind of equitably divide up the land, you know, sort of like some of them divide it and then some of them get to choose and that's, that's sort of their way of just making sure that they can, um, they all get an, an equitable amount. At the very end of Joshua, possibly one of the most faithful acts or, or circumstances in, in, in Israel's history, uh, the three tribes that are going back across the Jordan, if you remember this, they decide to build a monument on the Israel side of the Jordan because they want to remember that they are a part of the people of Israel. And the, tri- the other nine tribes get wind of this monument, and they think that it's an idol, and they freak out, and they put an army together, and they're like, we have to put an end to this. And so they go to march against the three tribes on the other side of the Jordan, and, and the other three tribes say, whoa, 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 that's not what we meant at all. We were just trying to establish a, a, a memorial for remembrance so that we would always remember that we're all one people. And so, you know, the, the people of Israel are like, oh, okay, and they all hug and they're fine. All right. But there's, there's a real sense of like, w- no, we want to do what's right at this point in Israel's history. This, this is a truly godly generation. I think you can say they—they they want to honor God. They want to do their best. Okay, and so the book of Joshua ends with Joshua um, kind of leaving, giving his farewell address. Uh, It's—it's—it's—it's kind of funny to me because he stands up there and he says, "You know, choose you this—you uh, know, me and my household. I'm going to choose the Lord. You need to choose this day which." what God you're going to follow, and all the people say, we're going to follow Yahweh, and then he says, no, you're not, <laughs> and they're like, yes, we are, and he's like, no, you're not, um, and it absolutely proves to be true. As we turn over into the, the book of Judges, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how much Moses in Deuteronomy and Joshua are like, really, you're not going to follow Yahweh. It just seems like it's, it's kind of baked into the cake. Um, this this early on. All right, so we'll turn to the content then of Judges. So, if Joshua is the most godly generation, then Judges is like the least godly generation, right? Um, so it's called sometimes the Dark Ages of Hebrew history, a book of failure. It covers three hundred and forty years from the death of Joshua to the days of Samuel. Here's one commentator's assessment of the book of Judges. The book of Judges in the Old Testament is deeply disturbing anthology of short stories about ambushes, assassinations, murders, dismemberments, spying, deception, underdog trickiness, lawlessness, sexual misbehavior, and the need for community reform and national leadership. Who in here knows what the theme verse of Joshua is? Yes, Gus. The last verse, that's correct. What does it say? That's good, that's the Gus translation. (laughs) At this time, there were no kings in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Erica was gone this week. She went up to North Carolina to do a college visit. And I came home one afternoon and my four boys were in the house alone and there was dirt all over the floor and all kinds of people screaming. And I think they said, "There is no dad in this house And every person did what was right in his own eyes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I think, I I suspect that Gus or somebody was like posted as as the lookout because I had this feeling when I walked in the door like there was this like and everybody like there was a sense that like there were like papers flying as people had like swept away. Um, Yeah, Walter. Exactly. All right, so the period of the book of Judges extends through three biblical books, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel 1 through 12. So within this book, and we won't cover it tonight, but I'm sorry, within this time period, within the time period of the Judges, we find the book of Ruth, okay? So just so you know, remember how I said all of the other books fit somewhere into these historical books. Ruth fits into the book of Judges. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is a part of the same scroll as the book of of Judges, all right? Um, Okay, let's talk for just a second. What is a judge? A judge is a deliverer and leader in Israel, usually ministering in a specific local area. Um, This is another thing that when I learned, I felt like it helped me a lot to understand the book of Judges. They're not chronological, okay? Number one, they're not national, right? So it's not like Ehud raises up and then Ehud dies and then Shamgar raises up and then Shamgar dies and then Gideon raises up. Like it's not like that. Like Ehud could be living at the same time as Shamgar is doing something somewhere else and Gideon is doing something somewhere else and Jephthah's doing something over here. So they're kind of all sort of intermingled. They're little, they're, they're judges over little places in Israel. They're, they're dealing with a certain specific area. The primary responsibilities are military leadership and then civil leadership. And there's 12 judges in the book, six are considered minor judges, and six are considered major judges. And then Samuel, like we said this morning, is the last judge. He is a national judge. So he judges all of Israel, but we have Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson are considered to be the major judges, okay? So, a word then about Israel at the beginning of the book of Judges, like I said, it's stark contrast to Israel at the beginning of, at the end of the book of Joshua. There are no more victories over the enemies of God. Israel no longer has a high reputation among the, the, the Canaanites. Judah kind of gets themselves together, I think, in chapter one, and they say, let's go down and, and take care of some work, and they, they take care of a little work. But other than that, um, Israel is given over to sin, they don't abide by the word of God, and they don't get to enjoy the, the, um, the opportunities that God has given them. Over and over again, in those first few chapters, it's stated that the generation of Joshua did not pass on the things that God had done. To the next generation, they didn't tell them. They didn't, and and I, I just I always take that, you know that that underscores for us the importance of passing on to the next generation the things that God has done. Okay, um, so we have in uh, no, uh, you can see there. Let's see. I give it to you. The success there: Judah and Simeon conquer southern Canaan, and then and then uh, uh, the list of failures sort of starts. Benjamin does not drive out the Jebusites. Ephraim and Manasseh partially conquer central Canaan. The northern tribes did not drive out the Canaanites. At one point, I might be getting this wrong. If if you read it, you can correct me, but, you know, at one point they say, well, well, that seems like a lot of work because if we go, you know, Israel was really good at working up in the hill country. Like, they were good at fighting up there, but they didn't want to go down on the plains because they had um, chariots and horses down there, and they were like, that's going to be a lot harder for us, so we're not going to do that work, which is just a complete denial. Like, who's fighting? Who's fighting for them? God is fighting for them, and they're like, well, God, I guess, you know, God can't take out the, he can take out the the, the hill country, you know, Canaanites, but he can't take out the chariots, and so they they don't trust him. Um, Three important realities about this period of the book of Judges. Uh, There is no king in Israel, so It lasts about 350 years, and that key verse that Gus mentioned earlier, every man did that which was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. I think we can say that Judges is sort of making the point that it would be good to have a king, right? So there's some like Davidic propaganda here in the book of Judges and Ruth to say, you know, there was that time when there was this confederacy of tribes and it didn't go so well. Um, So what Israel needed was a king. By the way, what we need is a king, too. Like, I know we're real high on our Republicans' uh, system of government, but ultimately, God intends for us to live under a monarchy. It's just the problem with monarchies right now is kings are humans who are sinful, right? So we need a human king who is a righteous king, and that king, is currently alive. He's just not here reigning yet, all right? So there is no king in the United States of America, and everybody does what's right in his own eyes, but one day that's going to change, all right? So there's a lot more things I would like to say about that, but we're going to move on. Um, The cycle of sin, reality number two. This This is probably the most important thing that you need to understand about judges. There's this cycle of failure. Okay, so I like to say this. You are an an Israelite farmer, and you have a field, but you have not done the work of getting the Canaanites out, and so there's a Canaanite farmer right next door, and he's got a field, and you live a couple of seasons together, And his crop is just growing a little bit better than your crop, you know, and you can't really explain it, but he's just making more money and he's got more food to eat. And so you go over to him one day and you say, Hey, Mr. Canaanite, why do your fields grow so much better than mine? And he says, Well, you see, there's this fertility deity over here in in this city that you didn't destroy, by the way. And uh, when I go up there a couple of times a year, take a sacrifice, have a little fun up there. Um, I come back and I, I just I, I worship this deity and like she like blesses me, and you're like, well I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. But it goes a couple of years and you think, maybe I'll try it, right? Like, if it'll help, I'll. Uh, maybe I can go up and I can visit. You know, man's got to make a living, right? Um, I'll go up and I'll visit the deity and I'll I'll do what I need to do, and then you know look at that. My, my they, they do seem better. They do, and I really enjoy this. Like This is great. I think I can be a worshiper of Yahweh and a worshiper of this Canaanite deity. I think I can make this thing work together. By the way, the problem with Israel, except for very, very short periods of her history, was not that she abandoned Yahweh altogether. The problem with Israel is that she tried to worship other gods and worship Yahweh. It's like, what are you doing? You know, this, you're, you're trying to bring both of these things together, and so that's the problem with not driving out the Canaanites, right? Eventually, that infection is going to spread, okay? So, that's what's going on, and so Israel periodically, and I'll, I'll just draw it up here because it's, it's worth seeing, you have this cycle of sin, uh, suffering, supplication, and salvation. And it just keeps happening over and over again in the book of Judges. Okay? So the people sin, and God, as He has promised in the book of Deuteronomy, brings a, a foreign invader who begins to oppress them, and they begin to suffer. All right? And so for a while 10, 20, sometimes 40 years, they struggle under invaders. The Midianites come and, and treat them badly. Um, and so God uh, causes them to suffer, and then eventually they, they decide to cry out to God for help. And if you'll notice, I don't know if you noticed this, sometimes the supplication is pretty pitiful. <laughs> you know, like if it, was, if it was our children and they were calling out to us for help, we might even be like, um, buddy, you're going to need to do better than that. But God is a very, very gracious and merciful God and he responds over and over again to their pitiful uh, acts of supplication. And so he raises up a judge who comes in and defeats the, the people who are bringing them under under suffering, and he brings about salvation. And that judge then rules in that area and helps them for a little, little bit of time until he dies and... The, the cycle starts all over again. And so this happens over and over again, all the way through the book of Judges. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the cycle. Um, any questions there? I've got a list there on, on page 16 of the Judges. Like I said, each judge was local except the last. Othniel, Ehud, I went over Ehud, Two weeks ago in uh, Sunday school, Ehud was the left-handed judge who went to fight against Eglon, right? Eglon Eglon was a rotund individual, very disgusting person, and Ehud carves his own sword and puts it on his hip. One commentator I said suspects that maybe since he was left-handed, he had his sword on the other hip, so when the guards went to like pat him down, they patted down the wrong yep, and they were like, okay, you're good, so he goes in to bring his tribute to Eglon, and he says, can I get a word with you in private to Eglon, and so all the people go out, and it says Eglon stands up, and Ehud, with his left hand, sticks that sword into Eglon, and it says that it, it went into his um, rotundness, and uh, the refuse flows out, and, and, and uh, Ehud uh leaves the door locks it and says um you should probably leave him alone for a little while he's taking care of some things and he escapes Um, same commentator we're getting very these guys i guess today did i did y'all hear me say that david killed that uh killed samuel yeah every time Uh (laughs) uh-huh hear hear what i mean not what i say so ehud ehud escapes shamgar Deborah, great story, Deborah. Gideon, Gideon finishes all his work and the people come to him and they say, we want you to be king. And Gideon says, no, 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 I'm not going to be your king. I'm not, I'm so humble. I'm not going to be your king. And then he has a little baby boy and he names him Abimelech, which means son of the king. (laughs) So, odd. Uh, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, did he sacrifice his daughter? That's the big question. He's the one who makes the vow and says, if I win this war, then whatever comes running out of my house, I will sacrifice. I guess he had a dog he didn't like, and he thought that the dog would come out and and welcome him as soon as he came home. But his dog doesn't come out of the house. His daughter comes out of the house, and she seems to know what she's doing. I don't know if, if you've read it. I don't know if you noticed that, but she seems strangely aware because uh, she kind of says, no, Dad, I think you really, I think you should. And she says, let me go off with my friends and spend a little bit of time mourning my virginity, and then I'll come back and you can sacrifice me. So the the on the side of the he didn't sacrifice his daughter is are those who would argue that he... Um, dedicated her to the service of the Lord. So, within the pages of, even, even in, in the early pages of 1 Samuel with Phineas and Hophni, we find that there are these attendant women in the ta- women in the tabernacle who seem to have given their life for some kind of service. So, the, the, like, Jephthah didn't really sacrifice his daughter crowd, says that he dedicated her to the service. He didn't kill her, he dedicated her to the service of the Lord, um, I think that's probably working a little hard at it. Um, any anybody? Yeah. hmm Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a which which he did. Jephthah. Interestingly, so he is attacking. Um, Who is he attacking? Yeah, the Ammonites. And the Ammonites come to him and say, you know, you came through our land and you weren't supposed to come through our land. And it's interesting. He quotes the Old Testament. He he knows his Bible. He, um, he says to them, it's like he's like, no, 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 that's not the way it happened. This is the way it happened. Jephthah is a very interesting person. He's also in the, you know, the Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. He's there. Um, it's a very interesting person, Jephthah. Some would say that the judges get progressively um, less righteous, you know. So it starts with Ehud and Gideon who are doing okay, and then it comes down to Jephthah and Samson, Samson's parents, right, can't conceive, and an angel comes to them and says, you're going to have a child, and they're old. Let me talk to you just for a second. Who are the people in the Bible? Let well, Leave Mary out of it. She's obviously a big one. But who are the people in the Bible whose parents were old and infertile who had an angel come to them and announce that they were gonna have a baby. John the Baptist, Abraham. Uh, I mean, that's some pretty high company that Samson's in, right? Like this is this is some, some pretty, pretty high company that he's in. By the way, the other thing I like to say about, about Samson is I think that Samson very well could have been like five foot one, you know, 95 pounds, with like, you know, tape on his glasses and a pocket protector. Uh, But when the Spirit of God came upon him, he became very strong, right? It's the Spirit of God that makes Samson strong. So when you see depictions of Samson, you know, you often see him as like this big hulking guy, you know, and it's like he was strong anyway, but when, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he was really strong. That may have been... But it also could be he was just a guy that looked like me, and then all of a sudden he was, like, picking up the city gates and putting them on his back and walking through a valley. You know, and it was like, wow, the Spirit of God really came upon that guy. Because when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you are able to do things that you weren't able to do before, and it's obvious that it's God who's doing it. Okay? And for us, the Spirit of God comes upon us, and what are we able to do? We are able to obey from the heart, which we weren't able to do, and it's obvious that it's God who has done that in us and not we ourselves, okay So all right, so I think we will be done there with the book of judges. Yes, no yes my yeah. And, and my understanding is that it was a pole, some kind of tree, the, the Asherah pole, and that these, these were the these were all over the place, these idols. I mean, I also think they're they're of a very immoral nature. You know, I think I think that that's you know, the the design of these things was they were something that represented immorality, and they were they were a place where you came and committed immorality as a sacrifice. To the God. This is where it gets a little dicey to try to fit this into a, you know, a, a children's Sunday school class. So that that is, you know, when he cuts down that asherah, you know, my understanding is he he's cutting down a, a pole of, of some sort that is being used as as an idol. Yeah. Sure. All right. Any other questions? All right. Well, we won't. We've only got about 15 minutes left, so. Um, as far as 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st Samuel, we, we did go through 1st Samuel together um, back uh, at the, in, in 2019. Um, like I said this morning, books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are in the Hebrew canon. Um, they are one book entitled Samuel, and so 1st Samuel through 2nd Chronicles records the establishment, the rise, the glory, and the decline and fall of the Hebrew monarchy. And first and second Samuel was probably composed after the division of the kingdom, after the death of Solomon, but before the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 722 BC, just because the, the author does not seem to mention that. Um, Samuel is the last judge, and he is raised up at a time when things are especially dark. Note the parallels between Samson and Samuel. It's very I think there's a, I think there's definitely intended to be a parallel there. Both of them are born of some somewhat miraculous. Uh, so Samson is is born to an older couple who are infertile. Samuel is born to Hannah, who is, married to Elkanah and is is also infertile and she prays and God blesses her. Um, Their ministries were probably somewhat close. I I think that the point being Samson, it's possible in my mind that Samson sort of squandered his um, leadership. He squandered the gift that had been given to him in in the spirit of God that was coming upon him, whereas Samuel was faithful it just, it seems to me that there's there's something going on there um, with those two guys. So Samuel is raised up to lead Israel into this uh, time that is going to be a, a time of spiritual renewal. First uh, 1 Samuel 1, 2, and 3, we get to see the boyhood of Samuel. We looked at that some this morning in, with our high schoolers. First Samuel 2, I think, is so interesting because you see Samuel, I think, four times in the text, it says Samuel is ministering before the Lord, Samuel is growing in wisdom and favor before the Lord, Samuel is ministering before the Lord, but then in between those markers in the text, you have Phineas and Hophni who are Eli's wicked sons who are quite literally committing immorality within the the tabernacle. So they are they are committing immorality in the gates of the tabernacle. They're going in and they're they're taking a portion of the the sacrifice. They're eating it themselves. And so finally this unnamed prophet in in 1 Samuel 2 comes to Eli and says, "You have you've let your your boys do this. You've let your sons do this and you've you've said nothing to them." And so God is going to remove your, your family is, is not going to be uh, the priesthood anymore. We're going to have this, this judgment is going to come upon you. Um, and so that leads then to sort of the famous story with Samuel, um, which we looked at this morning, and I pointed it out to the kids in 1 Samuel 3. I always think uh, this, is, this is a little bit interesting, 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. By the way, Eli to me is such a, like, mixed, he's another mixed bag to me. Like, I think he's, he's not a terrible man. Um, he sees Hannah praying in the temple, and he thinks she's drunk, Right? So in, and he, he goes and says, why are you drinking? And she says, I'm not drinking. I'm, I'm, try, I'm praying. I'm sad. I want to have a, a boy, you know, a baby. And he says, oh, okay. You know, so even that statement that the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim, I, I'm sure there's a physical aspect to that, but it, it seems as though the author is saying the leaders of Israel are just not seeing things clearly. And we've already seen this in Eli, in his inability to identify that Hannah is a godly woman. Um, Verse 3, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And this is what's interesting to me. It says, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Like, did Samuel have a little cot set up in the Holy of Holies? You know, it says he was sitting there where the ark was, and, and that's just one of those places in Scripture where, yes, we're often told or in the Scriptures, like, no man can see the ark, no man can touch the ark, only the high priest once a year, but here we have little Samuel who is, it seems to be, sleeping next to the ark, right? There's somebody else that we talked about in the Pentateuch who also goes into the meeting place of the Lord, into the, the ark of the covenant, it would seem, and meets with God face to face, and that's Moses. So it seems as though there are certain individuals in the record, most people cannot go in and see the Ark of the Covenant, but there are a few people who could, and they had a certain relationship with God, and Samuel seems to have been one of those people, and, and so we, we have the story there of Samuel, he gets called three times, you know, Samuel, and he gets up and he goes to Eli, you know, Eli, what do you want? I don't want anything, go back to bed. Again, again, Eli's vision, he's not, Eli is just not quite perceiving things. It takes three times for Eli to to perceive that, no, it might be the Lord calling you, and so Samuel goes back, and he says, Lord, you know, it's, I'm your servant, you know, I'm I'm listening, you can speak to me, and so once again, God delivers this message of judgment that is for Eli, and um, Samuel gets up the next morning. He's a boy, He's 10 or 11 years old, tops, and Eli says, what did the Lord say to you? And Samuel has to tell his, like, spiritual father that there's judgment coming, and, and, and we find out later that Samuel is going to be a man who has to tell a lot of people a lot of hard things, but the Lord, the Lord clearly prepared him and taught, to, taught him to do that uh, from a very young age. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to cover, we will get ourselves up to 1st Samuel chapter 8. I think that'll be a place where we'll stop because I kind of I brought you into the story of Samuel, uh, of Saul this morning. 1st Samuel 4 through 7 is truly one of my favorite passages of the scriptures. I, I, I love it so much. Um, that is the passage where the Ark of the Covenant gets captured. It's one story. First Samuel chapter 4, or Israel goes to battle with the Philistines. Phineas and Hophni think it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant with them. Um, it's, a, it's a rabbit's foot. It's, they've, they've got it all wrong. They've got it all wrong. It's a rabbit's foot. They think it's good luck. And so they think, well, no, no army can defeat us, right, if the Ark of the Covenant is just out in front of us. And uh, that's they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And the Philistines wreak havoc on the army of Israel. Um, most of y'all were in church this morning, right? Everybody was. Everybody was here. Let me just read the death of Eli and tell me. I as I was reading through First Second Samuel one, this there's clearly a parallel here. Just listen to this story. This is First uh, Samuel four. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line. And came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He He who brought the news answered, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Doesn't that that passage sound very, very parallel to the the young Amorite that came to David, and David is at his house in Ziklag, and the man comes, and his clothes are torn, and there's dirt on his head, and Eli says, give me the news, and David says, give me the news. Um, I just, I think there's, there's got to be some, like the, 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 the author who is writing in, in 2 Samuel 1 is, has got to be aware that we're, where we, there's a little parallel there between those two stories. And that news, the news is the same. In one case, it's the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. In the other case, it's the king, the anointed one of God, who has died. It's a very, very bad news coming at the beginning of, of both of those books. Um, one of his sons has a daughter who's about to give birth, and she gives birth to a little boy, and she names him Ichabod which means the glory has departed. Ich kabod, kabod is the word for glory. It means heaviness, no glory, ich kabod. Um, Very, very dark story there. By the way, when um, Eli falls over backwards and it says because he was old and heavy, the word for heavy there is the same word, kabod. It's, that means heavy, you know, holiness means heaviness. Um, Absalom's hair when he runs and he gets his hair caught in the um, uh, the tree and he's hanging there and Joab comes and kills him um, it says that his hair was kabod his hair was beautiful and heavy all right so that's if you're doing a word study of kabod it has a lot of different interesting meanings I did that word study one time yes yeah well, it seems like to me that what's happening at this point in the history of Israel is is there's been a lot of overlap between those three offices up till this point. So you've got The three offices of the Old Testament are prophet, priest, and king, right? And so there's a lot of overlap among the judges, Moses, even Samuel. Samuel is a prophet. Samuel is a priest. Eli is a priest. Eli is a leader. So you've got this overlap. And what's happening, I think, at this period in history is God is giving rise to these individuals who are going to be very specifically designated. So there's going to be a prophetic office, this Samuel is, he's not only a judge, he is a prophet, and we're going to see these prophets of God that are going to be very much advisors to the king. Um, so, you know, this, this Urim and the Thummim that you see, which we're not really sure what that is, but it's some way, it's almost, you know, the president has the red telephone, you know, it's almost like, you could almost see it like a red telephone, that the king had a direct access to Yahweh, that he could use this Urim and the Thummim. we see David using it to say, should I do this or that? And the Urim and the Thummim says, you should do that. So the prophets, the priests, and the kings are these these separate offices that begin to form. And then on top of that, like now, if you're a king, you better not be trying to function as a priest, right? Because you have Samuel who comes and judges Saul because Saul offered a sacrifice before the, the, the battle and he should have waited for Samuel. And he gets in big, big trouble for doing that. Okay. So, so yeah, there is this, this separation of those offices. And then, and, then, and then coming to the New Testament, Jesus then brings those three offices back together. So, in one person, in Jesus, we have a prophet, a priest, and a king okay so yeah that's and we'll see that now throughout the rest of the old testament the prophets elijah elisha who, who who raise up and who who work with the king and then a separate priestly class okay first samuel 8 i'll close with this probably one of the most important passages in the new testament that you've never heard of or you've heard of you've heard of it you've heard of it from me um but that is where i mentioned it this morning the people come to samuel and they say, we want a king, and they say specifically, we want a king to be like the nations. It wasn't wicked for them to ask for a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, we have a list of things that need to be true of the king of Israel, so God had already anticipated that there would be a king. I think it's Deuteronomy 11 or Deuteronomy 17, one or or the other. I see Tyler back there looking, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, what if it's... It's 17. Deuteronomy 17. Um, there's a list of, of uh, rules for the king. So it's not wicked to ask for a king. It was wicked to ask for a king, so that we can be like the other nations. Because who was their king? Their king was God. They were a theocracy. God had said, "I will be your king." And they're essentially saying, "Eh, no. We like a. We want to be like all the cool nations. The cool nations have kings that go before them into battle. And you don't. You don't seem that cool, God." And so Samuel lists out all of these things that will be negative about having this king and all the people gather together and they go, yeah, we still want a king. And Samuel goes back to God and he's deeply grieved by this. And God says, look, you just need to know they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And then he says, I'm gonna send you and I want you to anoint the man that I sent you. And that ends up being Saul, who like we said this morning, is very much a king like the nations he, god gives them sometime god gives us what we ask for and that's no good and then we find the rise of david in first samuel 16 uh who is a king like god would have for them all right all right and so if you want to learn more about second samuel just come to morning worship for the next few months and we will learn all about second samuel which i'm very excited by by the way i love preaching in the Old Testament. All right, any any final questions? Ruth? Yeah, I just breezed past Ruth, didn't I? What did I say about Ruth? I did. I did have some points. Yes. Uh, was it last summer? Um, I think Matt. Matt Davis. Um, here's the point of Ruth. I'll give you three things real quick. I have them in the notes here. There's always a remnant of God's people. So even in the midst of all that wickedness, you've got Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, and they're they're doing their thing. There's hope in the midst of sin, and it points us to David, because Ruth, of course, will end up being the grandmother of David. I always think, you know, Job, it, the first two chapters of Job, God sets it up. I'm going to, you know, Satan, you know, says, can I test Job? And God says, sure, you just can't hurt him. And then you have all of those passages, all of the middle part that's just discussion for like 40 40 chapters and then the last two chapters God wraps it up. I always think Ruth could almost be like like Job without the middle part. Like maybe Satan came to God and was like, "You see that woman Naomi? I want to test her. And I want to make I want to make her real, her life really hard." And God says, "Okay, sure, fine." And then, you know, like the whole thing gets carried out in four chapters, but we don't get to see all the middle part because it seems to me that the book of Ruth, it could be called Naomi Right, this this lady who's having all of these things happen to us, and we see this woman who is sort of you know fighting for faithfulness in the midst of all of these trials that she's having. So that's what I think about Ruth. All right, well, I would say I kept ninety nine percent of you guys awake for the whole time. So. <laughs> all right, uh, let me let me let me close this out in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you again. I do hope that you will open our eyes to the beautiful things in your word and that we will understand. And God, I pray that you would cause us to leave here and that we would all have insights into these things through your spirit whom you've given us. What an amazing thing you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to do things that we couldn't do. Number one, we couldn't understand the scripture. Now we have the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of that. Father, keep us from the sin that keeps us from you. Father, I pray that you would help us this week to live in repentance and confession and forgiveness. And we will be grateful for you to it. In Jesus' name, amen.